It's good to see you this morning, and if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to open them to the epistle of 1 Peter, and we're going to continue in our series in 1 Peter. We have made it thus far up through uh, chapter 1, verse about 18 or so. We're going to pick up with there in just a few moments as our study continues. Um, I want to remind us where we are and where we've come from in terms of our study of 1 Peter. We've talked about the blessings of joy and of hope and our, uh, our glorious hope that is to be revealed at His coming on the last day. And then we, we moved into a section in verse 14 of chapter 1 where we talked about the motivations or our guide to holiness. And sometimes I tend to get... Uh, give lists and either I don't give you the number that goes with a point or I forget something in a list and you end up with a blank spot in your Bible that uh, drives some people crazy like Treva. Anyway, um, so I, there are, and, and I hope you picked up on it, we're talking about seven motivations to holiness and let me give them to you real quick. So if you missed one or haven't figured out there's a numbering system here, let me just give them to you. Number one, who we are. We talked about we are God's children and thus our only job as God's children is to be obedient. That's a, that's a child's job. Uh, second motivation to holiness is who he is by implication. If we are his children, then he is our father. And so we talk about how God is a father to us. Number three. There are consequences. In other words, even though you are forgiven and even though you are in God's eyes holy as you stand in Christ in His righteousness, there are still consequences to things that you do wrong and I do wrong. Number four, there is, there is an accountability. God, Paul says, God will make all things known and those things whispered as in a dark room will be shouted from the rooftop. So there is a time coming when all our motivations and all the things that we think we keep secret, God says, will be made known in the last day. Number five, because of him who saved us. And here we're talking about Jesus, of course, and that's really where we left off last time. We said a couple of things about Jesus. So we'll do, uh, we'll pick up there with number five. We'll talk about five, six, and seven today. Motivations to holiness. Why do we want to be holy? What, what is so important to us about being holy? Because after all, if we're saved, can't we just do whatever we want? And we talked about this when we talked about it, accountability. If all we ever focused on was accountability, we'd lose all our joy. But if all we ever focus on is our forgiveness and everything's fine, then that would lead us into a life uh, of antinomianism or lawlessness, where we have the idea, well, I just live any way I want because Jesus wrote me a blank check. And that is not the way we're supposed to live. So the fifth motivation to our holiness and living the way we should is because of him who saved us. And, Paul, and Peter begins to write in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed, and here's what he's saying, you were not redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life that you inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he who was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. 
So he says basically seven things about Jesus in that short passage. He says, first of all, that he was holy, he was spotless. In other words, he was blameless. He never broke the law, not once. He kept and fulfilled every, as the saying goes, jot and tittle. And those are the tiny marks in the Hebrew language, just a little dot in the middle of a word. That's a jot or a tittle might be a, a mark above a Hebrew word or a Hebrew letter. And so he kept every part of the law perfectly. He was spotless. He was blameless, and he was the first one to ever do it. Now, Richard Bannister in 1952 in Helsinki at the Helsinki Olympics broke the four-minute mile. Before him, as far as we know, now who knows prehistory, but as far as we know, nobody had ever been able to run a four-minute mile. And that was like the, 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 the epitome of, of effort to try to break the four-minute mile. And it was said for a long time to be absolutely humanly unbreakable. You cannot, under any circumstances, nobody ever will run the four, run the mile in under four minutes. Yeah, Richard Bannister came along in 1952 in Helsinki and he ran the mile in under four minutes. And you know what happened right after that? People started running the mile in under four minutes repeatedly. I, I don't know how many times it's been done since then, but it's been done numerous times since. Now, I'm not saying that's not fast. I'm just saying it's been done. And what they thought was once impossible has been done. And once Richard Bannister did it, I think the lights went on and people said, well, it can be done. And once we grabbed the idea that it can be done, people began to do it. And the old saying is what one man can do, another man can do. Well, here, here's the thing. Not until Jesus had the law been fulfilled. Not one person in all of humanity, in all of history, had ever fulfilled the law. Never been done. And that's why Paul says he is the propitiation or the finality or the payment of the old covenant. God had a covenant. Nobody ever fulfilled it. So from the time when he began the covenant in the Old Testament all the way to the time of Jesus, the covenant stood unfulfilled, unpaid, unratified. It was still open, if you will. And yet Jesus comes along and he ratifies the Old Covenant by fulfilling it. He paid the price. Now here's what happened though. Richard Bannister broke the four-minute mile and people did it repeatedly, even though they thought it couldn't be done. Jesus fulfilled the covenant and kept it perfectly. And you know what's happened ever since? Nobody's kept it. Not a single person in history has kept it. It's not like the four-minute mile, like, oh, well, once we saw one person do it, that's how you do it. Anybody, you know, if you work hard enough, anybody could keep the law. Here's the deal. You will never keep the law. I will never keep the law. Jesus is the only person before his time, nobody kept the law. He's the only person to ever keep the law in its entirety and perfectly. And since him, nobody's ever done it. And nobody ever will. So Jesus was spotless. He was blameless. He was also imperishable, number two. We talked about the word perishable means that it loses its influence or it goes bad. Jesus was imperishable. He exists today, given glory, Peter says. And he exists in heaven now for what purpose? To make intercession for you and I, which, by the way, we desperately need. He's not only imperishable, he is foreknown for the foundation of the world. We talked about this a little bit last week. He wasn't a plan B. God didn't just rest for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew and say, well, it's good. it took us 400 years, but I think I've come up with a plan now. 
And so the New Testament's ushered in with the birth of Christ. That's not how it happened. Jesus was the plan of salvation before the world was ever made. Before the foundations of the world were ever created, it was known that Jesus is salvation to God's people. God knew it before he created the world. That's why it came about that way. The world was created. We were created. Reality is created because of who God is. God doesn't respond to our reality. We respond to the character and person of God. Number four, he was made known to us in these last days. You ever heard people talk about, especially now, by the way, if you begin to see some things that are happening. I received a text this morning from Brett that on a news article that says the one world, one world religion headquarters is soon to open. He's like, oh, that sounds awful. That sounds awful prophetic. Yes, it does. And I bet you see prophecy unfolding before us. And we begin to think we might be living in the last days. Here's the thing. Ever since Jesus came has been the last days. You are living in the last days. You absolutely are. But so were your parents. And so were your grandparents. And so were your great-grandparents. They're living in the last days. At least biblically speaking, the last days refer to not only the last as in the end of something, but the finality of something. We live in the day of grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it will be that way from here on. Those are the last days, the final days, the final ushering in of God's grace. So he, made, he was made known to them, or to us, in the last days. And I love the way Peter, Peter puts it. He's made known, uh, appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Now, again, this was written to a specific people in a specific historical context. And Peter's writing to those people... But even as we read this, I think in, this is one of those places where we can safely say, that's us. He appeared in the last days for the sake of you and I. Number five, through him we are believers in God. Number six, God raised him from the dead. And number seven, so that our faith and our hope are ultimately in God. That's our motivation to holiness, because of who Jesus is. Now, yes, I am forgiven, and I enjoy the benefits of God's grace. And by the way, once you start talking about whether or not we deserve grace, it's not grace anymore. Grace is absolutely, unequivocally undeserved. So you say, well, I don't, of course you don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve God's grace. Nobody deserves grace, because by definition, if you deserve it, it's not grace you're just earning it on your own merits. I mean, you don't know the things I've done. Well, you don't know the things I've done. But I tell you who does. Jesus. And I tell you another thing. He knows everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, and every bad or impure motive you've ever had. And yet he gives you grace. Because you don't deserve it. We live for his grace. The sixth motivation then to holiness. Peter goes on. And he says um, in verse 18, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through, who through him you believe in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. There's our sixth motivation to holiness. Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we are family. And Peter makes this point. I think he makes it so beautifully. You are family not by virtue of something perishable. As in your blood brother or blood sibling would be. I have two brothers. And they are both a product of something perishable from this earth. But we are brothers in Christ. We are sister, brother and sister in Christ. We are family in Christ, which he points out is imperishable. In other words, the brotherhood and sisterhood and familyhood that we enjoy in Christ is longer lasting than your actual brother or sister. Paul even makes this point. You are brothers and sisters, and they always add, in Christ. And for us today, I'm convinced most people mean it this way. You know, you're my brother in Christ. And, it, and for us, it's a qualifier, right? It's almost a disclaimer. It's like, you're, you're my sister in Christ, Treva. Uh, in, you know, in Christ. Like, not quite my sister. I don't mean, like, literally, you know, my sister, sister. Or, or you're my brother in Christ. And we say it as, as a disclaimer. In biblical terms, in Christ is an intensifier. In other words, you are more my brother than my siblings are. You are more my sister than my, my siblings would be. And we are family connected by a bond that is higher, that is above, that is heavenly, eternal, and imperishable, while the bonds that hold us to our siblings and our family here on earth are perishable. And so it's not the idea that you are my brother and sister, but only in Christ, but you are my brother and sister in Christ, which means imperishable forever, for eternity. Just say, well, you know, I don't know that I like you that much. You better get used to me. I'm going to be in eternity with you. You know, and you frustrate. Well, you frustrate me too sometimes. But you know what? I better love you because we're going to spend a long time together. Imperishable. You see, this brotherhood and sisterhood we have in Christ means something. It's not just something we say at church. It's not just something we read about in the Bible. And again, even when we read it, we say, you're my brother and sister in Christ. Oh, you're my brother and sister in an imperishable, eternal bond that is heavenly. And he's not going anywhere, and neither are you and I except to be with him. And we're going together. Here's the, I just think it's a wonderful truth. It's an imperishable, eternal kinship that will follow us into eternity. But, you know, being family implies a few things, doesn't it? Well, what, what's Peter say? Since you have been born again with an imperishable birth, and since this makes your relationship of brother and sister imperishable, love each other, what's he say? Fervently. Fervently. You loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Fervently? Fervently implies something. You may seek the other person's benefit over your own. You may love that person more than you love yourself, dare I say. 
When you love fervently, it means there's an active kind of love where you have not only passion, but compassion for your brother or sister in Christ, and you love them intensely. I dare say, and one of the, the com complaints you sometimes hear of pastors is, well, all your friends are church people. You don't know the real word. All your friends are church people. You know, your best friends in this life ought to be fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's where you're going to spend eternity. Your best friends ought to be believers. That's no accident. You know, some people say, well, you, you just hang around in your Christian bubble and you want to surround yourself with Christian friends. Well, no, it's not that I just want to surround myself with Christian friends. I like being around my family because I love my family fervently. And yes, my best friends are sitting in here. My closest relationships are sitting right here. That's the way it should be. And Peter says, love one another since you have this imperishable parentage or this imperishable brother and sisterhood. Love one another fervently. And sometimes that means saying things that are easy to say. Sometimes that means you have to extend a little forgiveness. That boggles my mind that some people who, who profess to know God's grace, when they know themselves and they understand what Christ did for them, and, and God pours out His grace on them and offers them the undeserved forgiveness of a holy God, and yet they cannot look across the aisle and forgive a brother. Are you more holy than God that you are so offended by a brother or sister that you will withhold forgiveness from them? The absurdity of it just boggles my mind. Who are you, who am I, to withhold forgiveness to another person when a holy God has extended it, and not only extended it, but paid for it with his own life? He died on the cross. So, so set on grace was he. He laid down his life for it. And yet we want to hold grudges? And we want to act like we're the great, you know, uh, I'm the great holder of forgiveness? You want forgiveness... You have to get it through me. And I'll decide who gets forgiveness and who doesn't. I've met Christian people, professing Christian people, who will split, never come back to a church, and they'll go their separate ways, never talk to another person. I knew a guy who had never spoken to people in the church where I was pastoring, though he used to be a member, hadn't spoken to people in that church in 20 years over a school bond issue. You know what a school bond issue is? Perishable. You know what your brotherhood in Christ is? Imperishable. People get mad. I, I can't fellowship with that person. Well, you better learn to. You're going to be singing the praises of God together. It's going to be really interesting, if not awkward, for some people when they get to heaven who've held a grudge against you for who knows how long, and they see you standing there. I dare anyone to hold a grudge against another brother or sister standing at the foot of the cross. You walk in the shadow of the cross, you understand forgiveness is not something that you withhold. God has extended it to you and you extend it to brothers and sisters. What else does family imply? It implies uh, where Paul perfectly sums it up and he says, bear one another's burdens. You care about your brothers and sisters. We care about people. In this church, if we don't do anything else well, we do a lot of things well. But the one thing I know we do very well is we love one another. 
If there's someone hurting in this church, you get on a prayer list. If you need someone to pray with, it's easy to find in this church. If you have a need, all you do is you come to this church and our people care about you. We have met needs. We do the things that family does for one another. Why? Because we have been given grace. God gave us everything. And so what, what does that motivate us to do? It wants us to be like him and give to one another and help one another and pray for one another and love one another fervently. Family also implies there is, there is a resemblance. Now, I don't mean physically. Some of you are very grateful for that. But it's interesting to me, and it has been for many years, even in seminary when I was on the pastor supply list, which meant you get a call to go to church down at Big Piney or wherever it was we were for a while. You know, you get a church to go over or get a call to go over to this little church because the pastor's on vacation. So you go to all these churches all over, you know, within 100 miles of the seminary. And it never ceased to amaze me how we would find the same people there. Not exactly by name the same people, but the same kind of people. And it's so, it's striking because you think, this person doesn't really look like this other person, but they remind me so much of, of, of this person I went to the other church. And they remind me of the other people I've seen. Why is that? Because we all, as if you've been paying attention, as we spend time with God, we reflect His holiness. And so obviously we're going to have a resemblance to one another because we're all trying to reflect God's holiness. When we, we, when we went to my, uh, Wyoming on sabbatical, we went to a little church and we originally went there uh, because on their website, they said, we proudly and uh, unrelentingly ascribe to the 1869 Baptist Confession of Faith. Like, that's the church for me. And they talk about how, you know, they're unapologetic about standing on the word of God. So we went and we met this wonderful couple that we had dinner with after church and both Tiffany and I felt just this amazing resemblance to a couple we had known in Mosby. I said, don't, don't Gary and Susan remind you of Mike and Janet? I was like, yes, they do. That's who they reminds me of. And there was, some, there was another younger family there, had several kids. He drove a great big pickup truck, and they started telling us about, oh, you know, they have a cabin, and they got, you know, these jet skis and all kinds of stuff. And I thought, that's the renters. I mean, they, they, they just reminded me. They had the personality, kind of personality. They, they looked that way to me. That's who it reminded me of. So even that far away, I was still thinking about you guys, because I, I see people in churches all over that remind me of you all when I'm not there. Why is that? Because there is a kinship in spirit. And when we go from one church to the other, if the spirit is really there, their spirit is going to remind you of the same spirit that you know in Stephen and Carrie. You're just going to see that, that kind of person. And it makes you so thankful that, you know what, I can be anywhere and be with family. And it was we went two Sundays in a row. And yet when we left, people, they weren't quite tearful, but, you know, they, there was hugs and, you know, they, they wished us well. And it's like we've become close. Yeah, how do you do that in two weeks? I mean, just because there's family. There's a kinship there. We're going to be together for eternity. eternity. And the fact that we are family motivates us to holiness. Why? Because your actions don't just affect you. Parents, when your children 
do something wrong, does that affect you at all? When they make bad choices, does that affect you at all? When they get in trouble, does that affect you? And children, when your parents make bad choices, does that affect you? Of course it does. There's a connection there. There is a spiritual connection here where your choice is the way you live. That affects my being. Do you know that the way you walk and talk, the way you live out your life, Paul says walk in a manner worthy of calling with which we have been called. You know what that does for people around you? Well, it either encourages them to walk faithfully or it discourages them from walking faithfully. But the way you live your life and live out your faith in this community affects everyone around you. I don't know about, like I said, sometimes moms have great theology. They just don't know it. My mom used to say this. You don't live in a bubble. In other words, what you do has effect on those around you. Your attitude has effect on those around you. My first wife reminded me that Sometimes I set the tone for the whole family. She's still my wife, by the way. I'm just saying she's my first wife. I just see if you're listening. <laughs> but she told me one time, you know, you, your attitude, the way, the mood you're in sets the mood for the whole family when they come over. I, didn't even, I never thought about that. Never realized that. Do you know the way you come through the doors of church? And you're excited about being with God's people. You're excited about worship. You're excited about the Lord. You know what that causes other people to do? Be excited about worship. Be excited about being together. And be excited about God's blessings. Even maybe they haven't had as many as you've had. They can rejoice in your blessing. The way you come into this place of worship affects everyone around you. And so does, by the way, you not coming. There is little as discouraging as to an empty seat where somebody used to be. Or maybe they're just gone this week or a couple, whatever. You know, when you're not here, there is a hole. Why? Because we're family. There's an emptiness when a family member is not here. So, love one another fervently. Number seven, our final motivation. We are moved to holiness because God spoke to us and gave us His Word. What Peter says, he transitions from this thought of being family into God's Word. And he says in verse 23, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk, the undefiled milk of God's word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What a gift that God gave us. Sorry about that. Somebody else sent me a word. What a gift that God gave us when He gave us His word. I know a guy one time that got an instructive uh, message from a fortune cookie. And he followed it. You know what? He followed God's word. That's what it's given us to us for. 
He gave us His Word. Now, the idea that God spoke means a tremendous amount. In fact, the beginning of the Bible says what? In the beginning was God. He begins to create. How did He create? He spoke. God spoke and it was so. The idea that God speaks makes a connection with His creation like nothing else. And I made much of the fact a couple of weeks ago, and this is, this is the beauty of cut and paste, uh, you know, modern times we live in. Sometimes your illustrations end up under a wrong point. You know, you're free, you think, well, that doesn't really make sense, but we'll go with it. Uh, when I talked about the chimpanzees thing, uh, there's a new study, a new book out that says cussing is actually not only okay, but beneficial to you. And one of the proofs they have for that is that chimpanzees cuss. And I don't know, you know, what, who, or how sounds differently than the others that they call it cuss word. But this scientist said, yeah, chimpanzees do it. Now, they're, so that's a good example for us to follow. And they go on to talk about how, how, you know, cussing is good for you. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. Now, idea that God spoke and that you and I speak is part of the image of God. And yes, I know, you know, Coco the gorilla, whatever, knows 300 sign languages and whatever. That's not speaking like humans speak. We are the only animal on this planet created by God that speaks in the manner in which we do. We can communicate. Our words have meaning. Our words have passion. Our, mer our words have moral value. Chimpanzees do not put moral value to words. We do. And the reason we do is because God does. Because our, even our speaking and ability to communicate reflects the image of God that He put in us. He created us in His image, and part of that image is to communicate and to speak. And because of that, because your speech is part of the image of God, He cares about how you use it. And Paul said it this way, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word that is edifying, that it may give grace according to the moment. God doesn't like it when we use unwholesome language, filthy language, talk dirty or talk bad about people. And when we use the instrument that is a reflection of his own image for evil. It means something the way we speak. God communicated and created by speaking. We're able to communicate ideas by our speech. God's gift to us. When we look around the, the animal kingdom, we think, well, they, they speak, kind of. You know, sometimes you're, you even hear people say, well, trees speak because they communicate in some way. Not like people do. And even if the chimpanzees do cuss, I reminded us that, you know, you go to the zoo, you'll see chimpanzees doing things. That doesn't mean it's good for humanity. There are a lot of things animals do that's just not good for us to do. At the end of the day, DJ and Everett were over. Everett went out front to play. DJ's standing in the living room. And we're talking. And our little dog, Chaucer, we're, we're very, uh, you know, we're very literary. Anyway, we let Chaucer out front. Now, we usually let him out back, but he wanted to go out front. So he went out front to body. So DJ's standing in the living room. He turns on and glances out the window. You know, you check on your child out there. And he says, what in the world? He goes running out the door because Everett had seen Chaucer relieving himself in the front yard and thought, well, if it's good for the dog, it's good for me. 
Not everything animals do is good for you. We don't have to live like an animal. That's why I was just dismayed all the time. People say, well, you know, I can't help my passions. I can't help this. And I have a, a good friend that uh, wasn't a believer. And he'll always say, I, wouldn't, I won't worship a God that will give me passions and inclinations and then say no. Christians ought to live somewhere above the barnyard when it comes to morality. Right? Well, you understand. That's okay. Yeah, I understand your nat natural inclinations. I understand your natural bent towards sin. We're called to live above that somewhere. Because we're not animals. And how we speak makes a difference. In John, he describes Jesus as what? The Word. Now, when he talks about Jesus being the Word, in that context, John's not talking about the Word as in the Bible. He is talking about the Word as in Jesus. And because in Greek, the word is logos. And logos in Greek was a Greek philosophical term that meant reason or organization or co coherence. That's why you hear people talk about logarithms. They have reason, okay? What's it called when you have, you know, you have action and reaction. It's a sequence, everything's orderly. And so in the beginning was the word, the logos, the reason, the ordering mentality of the universe. His name was Jesus and he was with God and he was God. Why does John use the word word to describe Jesus? Because word reflects organization. It reflects reason. So when we talk and we speak, we should do so with reason. There's an old saying, speak well, live well. You know your life will follow your speech. You speak badly, poorly, negatively all the time. That's the way we tend to live. How we speak is important. It reflects our character. You, you, you make certain assumptions about people when they speak, don't you? I mean, we were reading a Craigslist tab one time, and there was an ad for a truck in there. And it said, it said, she ain't much good. Probably, probably, P-R-O-L-L-Y, probably gonna, G-N-G-U-N-A, probably gonna need a new windshield. S-H-E-E-L. She ain't much good, probably need new windshield. What do you assume about that person? Either one, they don't know English. Maybe it's not their first language. Could be. Other than that, you assume this person is just not quite there. They're not paying attention. You assume some things about the way a person speaks. And so when I hear somebody, like a good friend of mine, Fagan Bob, used to be able to do, he could use uh, the, the, the queen mother of all words in a sentence in about four different cases, as a verb, as an adjective, as a noun. It didn't matter. It prefaced everything. You know what I assumed about, even if I didn't know him, knowing him confirmed it, but even if I didn't know him, you know what I assumed? That he is perverted in his mind and has a certain bent towards morality and sexuality that is not healthy. Why? Because his speech reflected that. What did your speech reflect? God's grace? 
So it's important. It's so important, in fact, that God gave it to us in written form. Because what he has said needs to remain the way he said it. And God, if you look back on history, has always been a codified people. In other words, God has always had his word in written form for his people after they went to the promised land. It started with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Then it went into to the prophets, that, and then on into the New Testament and so forth. God has always provided his people with his word. Why? Because what he speaks and what he says is important. And it's a gift to us. Sometimes we read the Word of God and we're like, oh, so onerous. You know, every page is so convicting. It should be a joy. God has given you His Word. What an amazing gift. You don't have to remember exactly what He said because you can just read it again. And some of us need to read it again and again and again because it takes us a while to get it, right? But what God has to say, He's given to us this wonderful gift and, and we don't treat it much like a gift. I'm not sure what, how that makes God feel. One time, Tiffany and I uh, got Hayden a bicycle for Christmas. I stayed up all night putting this contraption together. No instructions, of course. Who needs the instruction? So it took me all night to put, the, put this bike together. Now I'm thinking it was Christmas' birthday, actually, because it was warm outside. It's his birthday. He comes out of his room, morning of his birthday, this mechanized glory is sitting in the middle of the living room. It's just, I'm almost tearful just looking at it. I can't wait for the moment when he sees it. And you know, you just can't wait for this excitement that's just gonna erupt from his inner being at the sight of this bicycle. He comes out of his room and just crescent falling. And he says, oh, it's a bike. What? Really? You don't know what I went through to put this thing together? You get on and ride that thing. And, uh, well, he crashed once, and that was that. And I went back to Walmart. But the, the moment that I, I felt like was going to be such joy, you know, it's a bike. I was heartbroken. I just wanted that for him so bad. God has given us his word. Now, there was a time uh, in my life before... Um, matrimony and Tiffany would sometimes write me letters and I remember at college I get a letter from her sometimes you know what I did with it? I put it in my pocket I wouldn't even open it for like a couple of days every once in a while throughout the day I just rub my pocket people thought I was being weird but I just rub my pocket give myself an encouragement tap you know because I had that letter and then after a few days would go by I'd, I'd, I'd open it a little bit and I'd take it out. I could hold it up and see her handwriting that I knew so well. I didn't read it yet. I just savored it. I don't know if anybody else do this. I'm probably the only one. Anyway, so then, then you open it and it said, Dear, I don't want to tell you what name was, but anyway, she'd say my name. And uh, that's all I needed for that moment. Then I'd read the first couple lines. And then I'd fold it back up and put it in my pocket. And you, you savor every, every word, every moment of reading that letter is wonderful. What if, what if she said, hey, did you know, this was back in the day in the dorms and you had to go to the pay phone in the hall. Anyway, what if she said, hey, did you get that letter that I mailed you? Yeah, I got it. Where is it? It's in the back window of the car, I think. I don't know. 
Did you read it? Eh, not yet. I'll get around to it. A week later, she calls, hey, did you get that letter? Yeah, I found it. Did you read it? Eh, parts of it. Yeah, you know, the first part was good. Kind of lost me in the middle there. And, you know, that I love you is nice, thanks. I mean, how would that make her feel? She's given you this great gift, taking the time to articulate herself, reflecting the image of God to do so, and tell you some things from their heart, and you don't even bother to read it? You would think that was harsh and unkind, and dare I say, just rude. And yet, here's God's love letter to you. Where, where's yours? Is it stuck away somewhere, buried among the other to-do lists? Unopened? Unread? God said, I've sent you, a, I've sent you my word, my very word. It's, it's the mind of God. I, I'm telling you what I think. I'm the creator of the universe and everything you see around, will see around you in all the infinity of space. I created it all and I'm going to tell you my thoughts. Here they are. And you're just like, oh, whatever. You know, I, gotta, I need to play, I was going to say Nintendo, but I'm sure that would date me. Uh, you know, I, I, got, I got other things to do. Other things more important than knowing the very thoughts of God? What a gift He's given us. The more time you spend in God's Word, the more you come to value it. I was on a mission trip to Nicaragua, and we have those pastor trainings, and you're aware of those, because I bring back reports occasionally, and you send me, so um, you're aware of those. But one time we had the pastor's conference, uh, the training time, and a pastor from an outlying village they just call them the hills, uh, came down. Took him two days by bus. And when I say bus, I don't mean like the kind of Dwight drives, you know, the fancy buses that, you know, are comfortable and posh and all that. I mean a bus that you're on there with about twice as many people as should be on that bus, and, you know, and that's not even counting the chickens and pigs and everything else that are on the bus. For two days, he took the buses to get to this conference. He gets there, and the whole time during the pastor training, I noticed... He had a little blue Gideon's New Testament. One of those little, little ones they give the kids at school. That was his only Bible. And he was in, not exactly young. And I would see him, he, he's, the, the print is so tiny, but he poured over it. And as he unfolded it, pages and sections would fall out. He, he carefully put them back. And you could see all in this tiny little New Testament he had underlined, underlined, had, had notes in the margin and circles. And he just, you could tell he spent time with God's Word. And this was the only Bible he had. He didn't have the Old Testament. And he just cherished it. Well, at the end of the end of the pastor training thing, one of the things we do for the Nicaraguan pastors is we give them the Spanish version of MacArthur's study Bible. And uh, this particular year, it, we even had a, a little zippered case for it because we're hoping they'll become Baptists and every Baptist needs a zippered case for the Bible, preferably one with a handle, right? If your Bible's so small you don't need a handle, then there's something wrong with you. Anyway, we give this to this man, and I remember the whole time we're, we're handing out the certificates. Now, certificates in that culture are a big deal. 
So we're handing out the certificates of completion, and I promise you this, this little old precious pastor could not care less about that certificate. What he could not keep his eyes off of was the Bibles. And when we started handing them out, his eyes just got huge. It's, it's, it's that same reaction I was hoping for with Hayden and the bicycle, except this man, when he realized, you could just see in his face, when he realized they're going to hand me one of those Bibles. Because he saw us giving it to other people. We came, came to his turn, and I had the opportunity to be the one we traded turns as we go. I had him to be the one whose time was up, and I was able to hand him this Bible. And he seized upon that thing, and he did not let it go. He held on to that Bible like it was life. Because to him, it was. He now had the Old Testament and the New Testament in a print big enough for him to read. And you thought he would have just won the lottery. He was passionate about his love for God's Word. Now, we can hardly imagine not having a Bible. Well, Sometimes, I, I confess, this particular Bible stays in my backpack all week long. Hey, well, I thought you just said you better be in the Word. Well, I have like 10 other versions in my office. Now, I have a genuine leather. And by the way, anything less than genuine leather is borderline sinful. Anyway, I, I have one this size. I have one that some dear people all the way from Cambodia when they were there uh, gave me for Christmas. Thank you, Stephen and Carrie. Uh, it's the entire Bible, but it's pocket-sized. Genuine leather, by the way. <laughs> I have the ESV, the NIV, the RSV, the NASB, the Williams Bible, the Tyndall Bible. I mean, how many Bibles do you have? I got, I got a whole shelf, and nothing on that shelf is but Bibles. That's what it is. It's so easy for us to grasp, and yet so many of us don't. And yet people that don't have the Word of God, when they get it, like I can read God's Word. What a gift. Peter says this. He's given it to us so that we might grow up in holiness unto salvation. Now, it's not the idea that suddenly you earn your salvation. It's just that salvation is a growing process. Since you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, He gave you His Word so that you might grow up into salvation. How do you treat God's Word? Does it motivate you to want to be holy that God took time to give you His Word? It should motivate us. So Peter closes it out the way he began. Remember how he began? With this whole idea that you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then he goes through this whole list of seven things the way I've divided it. Seven things, and he comes back to what? God's Word. Why? So that you may be holy. And we've come full circle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and thank you for your goodness. Lord, I thank you for grace, the unspeakable forgiveness that you poured out on the cross. For those of us who could never deserve it. For the life that you laid down, Lord Jesus, on the cross that was perfect, spotless, blameless. And yet you 
gave it willingly that we might know life. Thank you for loving us that much, Lord. I pray that we would never take for granted the gifts you've given us, either as brothers and sisters in Christ, what a gift they are. What a wondrous, wonderful thing to have family. But not just family, but family in Christ. And what a wonderful thing to have you with. I pray, Father, that as we leave this place, we leave here embracing, valuing, and cherishing both our brothers and sisters and your word. Thank you for leading us not only out of salvation, but leading us all together across paths to serve alongside one another.